me when you're ready. Okay. So this morning is January 3rd. It's 2010. Uh, I can almost choke on those words. I cannot believe it is 2010. Uh, all of my favorite songs are no longer relevant anymore. You know? <laughs> uh, our message this morning, uh, I have a couple things on my mind, but the title, uh, if you're taking notes, is Sacrificial Songs. And uh, one of the things that I want to do at the beginning of every year is remind everybody about our church's vision. Uh, it's unique. It was spoken to me in 2003. Uh, I got in a car and drove immediately to Baton Rouge to talk with Matthew and Cassidy because I thought that the vision God gave me involved them. Uh, in 2004, they came. Uh, God had raised up a young woman, Mandy Wakefield, to come all the way from Arkansas to help us get the church off of the ground, to help us found the church. But all of it relates to a revelation that I was given in Acts 16. So that's where we're going to start this morning. And as we cover this revelation in Acts 16, I want it to be a renewal of purpose for us this year, uh, things that we will be looking forward to, a reminder of the kind of lives we're supposed to live. I also, Robbie and Holly are here with the hopes that they will be planting a ministry in the next year. Maybe in Kingwood, maybe in Tennessee, there's some uh, spiritual discernment left to take place there, but I wanted them to hear our vision and how that got started. And then lastly, the third thing is, Aside from reminding you of this, aside from encouraging those who want to start churches and do those things, there's some elements in it that I just have kind of a new insight on that I wanted to share with you. Is that fair enough? So sacrificial songs today. You are in Acts 16. Uh, We're actually going back up to Acts 15, verse 40. It says, But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cecilia, strengthening the churches. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess. One of the things that God began to minister to me about life-changing ministries, I had come out of a thriving, dynamic church that I was excited about, men that I admire, and it felt a little disconcerting to be thrown out into a ministry without having some of the familiar faces around. Can you relate to that? If, uh, if every car question that you've ever had, Adam has been standing next to you mm-hmm. to help you answer it. Mm-hmm. If every time you went to go rewire something, uh, you knew that Matthew was there, and now you're called to ministry and suddenly you're alone, uh, that could be disconcerting. One of the things that God began to speak to me is who would you choose? Paul chose Silas. That was not hard for me. Uh, in my heart, I believe God had set apart Matthew a long, long time ago. We were 15, 16-year-old little kids uh, and knew that God was going to do something. So I began to walk around our neighborhood and pray and ask that God would send Matthew. And because I can be more than just a little bit audacious, I started sending postcards to Matthew's house with scriptures on them. Uh, I think 10, 15 in a row about how wonderful Texas was. Uh, tried to convince him Sugarland was the Hebrew pronunciation for the promised land. He didn't buy that. And in fact, it was not right. But God began to show me that there would be people that he would add. And as I read this next verse about Timothy, it says, He came to Derby and then Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in the area. I have a lot to say about that. I don't know how much of it uh, you need to hear today, so I'm going to try to be led by the Spirit in that regard. But one of the most basic things that the Lord began to tell me is to our ministry, he would add those who were willing to shed their blood, even if it wasn't required of them. I want you to know that in the kingdom, we must have an attitude that is both simple and sincere and, most of all, sacrificial. Timothy is probably a teenage man at this point. Paul, 14, 15 years later, in, uh, in his pastoral letters to Timothy, still calls him a young man. So if he's a young man 15 years after this, he's probably uh, a really young man at this point. But having said that, he had lived all of his life uncircumcised. There is no compulsion for him to have to be circumcised. Uh, Corinthians 7, 18 
says, remain in whatever state you were called in. It was not incumbent upon Timothy to have to cut his flesh for anybody's sake. In fact, Titus was a Gentile believer that Galatians 2.3 says was never compelled to be circumcised. One of the great questions in the early church was, what kind of identity do we keep when we come into Messiah? If we are Gentiles, do we have to become Jews? Do we have to become circumcised to come into the Messiah? And Paul's great work said, no, no, you don't have to do that. However, when God is adding people to him, he adds Silas, who happens to be a Roman citizen. He adds Timothy, whose mother is a Jewess. In Ezra, the 10th chapter, the 2nd and the 3rd verse, Israel is facing a problem. And while they're facing this problem, what has happened is Jewish men have taken Gentile wives. And I use that term, wives, loosely. Uh, They weren't really treated like wives, but they were cohabitating with Gentile women. And God began to deal with them. And Ezra came to a conclusion as led by a couple of the elders and said, Look, any of these women that have not converted to Judaism, throw them and their children out. The people of God must remain pure. Because of this, throughout history, if your mother was Jewish, you were Jewish. If your father was Greek, it didn't make any difference. So you could have a mother that was a Jew and be a Jew. Or you could have a father that was a Jew and your mother a Gentile and you would not be considered Jewish. Okay, That's based on Ezra's reading. Having said that, one of the first things that Timothy faces is when I travel with Paul, this rabbi of rabbis, Paul's rabbi was a man named Gamaliel who in the first century was the preeminent rabbi. The first one to achieve a title called Masai, which is president. The first one to be called Rabban, which means the rabbi to the rabbis. Uh, He's the grandson of a man named Hillel. This would be like going to study physics with Albert Einstein. And now his protege is a believer in Yeshua, and he is out there championing the gospel. And he takes to himself a young Jewish boy. Greeks might consider him Greek because his dad was Greek, but Jews would consider him Jewish. So Timothy has a choice before him. He could say, it's not required of me that I do anything. But he wanted to go the extra mile, and he was willing to shed his blood for other people's benefit, so as to not lay a stumbling block in their path. Now to us, you know, it seems bizarre to even talk about circumcision. That's not a big part of our culture. But my point is, God began adding people to Paul that were uniquely equipped for the work. Men that he chose, men that were chosen by God, men that were willing to sacrifice for others' benefit. When God began to speak to me about this work, he began adding people to me that would sacrifice for the work of God. They would take pay cuts and move away from their families. They would come without jobs. That would do whatever it took. And your lives have benefited from that, right? This is how ministry is done. All ministry must be simply put forward for what it is. No parlor tricks, right? All ministry must be sincere. It must be motivated from something that is deep within inside you and not something that you read on a wall or a bumper sticker somewhere. And all ministry must be sacrificial. I'm reminding our church of these purposes in our lives because this is what we carry into 2010. We will not attract people here because we put a Starbucks in here. And if you have a Starbucks, praise God. I'm not, not, that might be somebody else's church vision. I actually kind of like to drink Starbucks. I mean, one of these churches around here would like to put one in for us. I'm not going to turn it away. It's just not what God called me to do. We are not going to build bowling alleys. We are not going to build gymnasiums. I, I'm not, all of those things may be wonderful. This is not what God called us to. Acts 16 shows us what God called us to. And I'm inviting you to entwine your lives in it. The same way that Silas and Timothy became entwined with Paul as we move forward. Amen. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in the, that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. The message that Paul, Silas, and Timothy delivered to people was not of their own creation. You know, you know how many times I have been told in our ministry, Eric, if you would just leave this out, or Eric, if you just modify this a little bit or just not talk about this, the church would grow a lot. 
I don't have the right to do anything other than bring what the apostles have brought me. Does that make sense? And I, I want you to understand that may not be seeker sensitive. I have never aspired to be seeker sensitive. The king that I follow looked right at people and said, if you don't hate your mother and father when compared with me, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. How seeker sensitive is that? He looked at other people and said, your father is the devil. How seeker sensitive is that? Our church is not interested in being seeker sensitive. Now, people confuse because we dress like hillbillies and uh, we're not into religious things and thought, oh, well, they're, they're seeker sensitive. I'm seeker sensitive to the standpoint that I don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable in here for no reason. I'm not seeker sensitive to the point where I'm willing to change a ounce of the scripture for anybody's comfort level. We recently had a long discussion with another ministry that said they thought it was best if we just pretended like alcohol was not in the Bible. And they're sincere as can be. I just think it's a gray area, Eric, and you ought to just leave it alone. Well, that's fine, except Jesus drank it every day. Am I going to make him guilty of sin? My goal is to deliver what the apostles have delivered to me, period. Now, I want to tell you, there has to be room for growth. There has to be room for changing your mind. Have you ever been so sure something was right until you found out it wasn't? You ever stand your ground and fight with somebody over it? We're trying to be correctable. We're trying to be open. And I encourage you to look at 2010 as a year that you change some of your paradigms, where you're willing to re-examine. There are some things that will never change. But we need to keep an open mind and not just look for the latest fad that will build the church. I want the number of people in here I can effectively disciple. That's what I want. I'm not into, and I'm going to talk to you about a crowd, a congregation, and a core in a minute. Okay, so Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the providence of Asia. <laughs> Does that mean God didn't care about the Asians? Asia is an enormous place. So why did God prevent them? The Holy Spirit prevents them from going to another place here in just a minute, didn't you? He has a plan for our lives, a task. We're each assigned fields, Corinthians says. It's our job to work in those fields, not in anybody else's. This means when somebody says, you know, Mandy, you're pretty fired up, chick. I kind of like you. I can see God moves in your life. What do you think about Joyce Meyer? Is Joyce Meyer Mandy's field? Probably not. I mean, is she calling you daily asking you for advice? You sit on her board? Well, when we have no authority in a situation, we might need to have no opinion. Our ministry is not here to issue commentary on everyone else. Our ministry is simply to go to the people God has called us to, and you need to realize something. He has not called us to everyone. Paul was not allowed by Jesus to go to Asia. Now, I'll take you in my office sometime and show you the world map. In general, every time a door was closed, it was due east. God wanted the gospel to go north. He wanted it to go west. He wanted it to go south. He wanted it to stretch out around the world so that it would wrap all the way around the globe and approach Jerusalem in the last days from the east side where Jesus would appear. Wow. And if you look at the globe today, the countries that are experiencing the biggest revival are India and China. Biggest revival in the world. They're all east of Jerusalem. What stands between them and Jerusalem are Myanmar, Pakistan, Iraq, Iran. Afghanistan, all of those Islamic-based countries that really have a veil of deception over them. Does that tell you how you ought to pray, saints? Yeah. God has a method and a plan. And it's not that he didn't care about Asia. It's that he had a time period in which Asia would experience revival. He has a method that he's working through. Since he didn't download it to all of you, and he didn't download it to me, what are we asking the word to be? A light under our feet. We're saying, Lord... I don't understand your workings in all of the nations. What do you want from me today on Sugarland? Right? I, I really get tired of people asking me to vision cast about where we'll be in five years. I hope I'm good looking and skinny. <laughs> I have no idea where we'll be in five years. I know the task that he's given me to do. Amen? Okay, watch this. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. By the way, Bithynia is northeast of where he was standing when this happened. But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So much for witnessing to everyone in every elevator you've ever come across. Mm. Now, I want to submit to you that if you're not interested in witnessing to the people in the elevator, you will never be led to. 
But if you are interested in it and you're praying and you're asking, Lord, when I go out today, who is it that you would like to touch with the gospel? He will show you this one and not that one. Now, so that's kind of mean. No, it, it's not mean. He has been preparing people's hearts. There was a day I got born again for a reason. There was a time. There was a time when you got born again for a reason. Some of what we're going to study here is what all God did to put you into a position where it could work with your heart. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him. If you were taking notes, you might say, man of Macedonia, right? Not mom, just man of Macedonia. Paul saw a vision. Now, it's going to be a long time before he runs into a man from Macedonia. He's going to run into a woman. He's going to run into lots of people. But no one identified as a Macedonian man. Sometimes when God shows you something, it's like seeing peaks into the distance. You see the mountaintops, but you have no idea how far between them. You don't know what you must go through to get from one to the other. And God does not owe you that explanation. On this mission trip, one of the things that one of the pastors told me, he said, Brother Eric, I really like your people. That's good, though. I kind of like them, too. You know? He said, I notice when you ask them to do something, they don't ask why. I said, well, it's not because they're just automatons. It's because they trust me. We have that kind of relationship. And I wouldn't ask them to do it if there wasn't a reason. That is exactly what God's looking for from us. You know, he does not have to explain to you why he wants you to run to that strange-looking Ethiopian's chariot. He doesn't have to. And when we break down into deliberation and we take it to the phone instead of the throne and we all begin to call and debate and sit down and deliberate before long the moment has passed. And then when you finally do muster up the courage to become obedient, you have missed your window of opportunity. Paul sees a vision of a Macedonian man. He was standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. I have a pet peeve with the American church. Uh, I think anybody who knows me knows that. We have fallen into this idea that, okay, Cody has been thriving in our ministry. He's been growing his whole life branching. All right, Cody, when are you going to do your own thing? Where is that written in the Word? Amen. Okay, well, Matthew and Eric have been working together for 20 years. They're doing good. But, I mean, why is it Matthew never branched out and started Matthew P. Rowe Ministries? And this gets to be a question. You know, that young man is anointed. Why is he not out doing his own thing? Because the Word never calls you to go do your own thing. One man had a vision, and they concluded it was their calling. Now, I'm not telling you that I own you or that you can't go out. I, our ministry is here to raise up people to send out. But the point is, it's not incumbent upon every Christian to go start their own ministry. Your ministry might be within other ministries. In fact, it almost certainly is. Can you imagine writing seven letters and encompassing the entire church world? The church at Ephesus. The, the church at Ephesus. The church at Thyatira. The church at Laodicea. Why weren't they breaking off and going to do their own thing? All right, this is the only time you'll ever hear me endorse the word Catholic. Catholic means universal. The church of Christ is universal. It's not Roman, and its leader doesn't wear a funny hat. But it is universal. And sometimes we're so individualistic that all we're doing is looking for a chance to go franchise our own thing. And we say it's for Jesus, but the truth is, what it really ends up being, it's just one more man who needs to die so you can see Jesus in there somewhere. Come on, have you all not seen that? Our ministry will not be that way. Matthew and Cassidy and Eric and Jennifer have taken an oath, just like two married people, a covenant with one another. We are not interested in promoting Eric Stevens or Matthew Peeble. We're interested in promoting life-changing ministries. We don't have ulterior motives. Our goal is to see you raised up. That's our goal. Some of you will leave. Some of you will go do things that God has called you to uniquely do. And the vast majority of you will not. You will support others who are doing what God's called them to do, and that's your work. That's not demeaning. That's not wrong. That's noble. That is noble. When God wanted to split Barnabas and Paul up so they could go separate ways, 
can't cause a tremendous or allow them to fall into a tremendous dispute because nowhere was it in their minds. Well, soon I'll be ready to branch out on my own. I was talking with a minister from David Hogan's ministries. He said the question he hates the worst is, when are you guys going to do your own thing? He said, never. We've joined this man's vision for our lifetime. Never. So we're in a covenant. We will never go do our own thing. That's the first time I ever heard anybody say that. That was noble. That's exciting. He's not interested in building his name. Because of that, I think our church is going to support him. <laughs> you know, we've got to scrape together some pennies to do it. You ready to get further in the Word? Yeah. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The conclusion they came to was since Paul saw it, it was for all of them. Wouldn't it be great if a husband and wife didn't need to have separate confirmations? Wouldn't it be great if they loved each other enough, if they worshipped together enough, that if Jennifer said, Eric, I saw this, that that would be enough for me? How many times have you heard somebody cross their arms and say, well, he may think that, but until Jesus shows me. <laughs> really? So God's, God's now in the business of democracy, right? Every biblical structure ever set up is a theocracy. He speaks, we listen. He doesn't obey our commands, we obey his. This is the goal, saints. The goal is to not have to sit down and fight and debate and scratch out and list pros and cons. But to be close enough with Jesus and close enough with each other that we believe each other, that we move forward in support of each other, that we trust that God is big enough to make it all work out for our good. Amen? Amen. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace, and there, next day, on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. Where did Jews pray? A synagogue. Synagogues were usually placed by rivers outside of cities. It's on the Sabbath. They're in a synagogue. Why? They are Jewish. The early church was all Jewish. The surprise was that guys like us got to get grafted into that. It was a surprise. Watch this. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Okay, if you just have a gathering of people who are listening as you speak, for argument's sake, we're going to call that a crowd. Lydia is one of these people who is in this crowd. She simply gathered there to hear them speak. Crowd is in, if we're looking at concentric rings, this is the furthest one from the center. Crowd. They're just there to hear what this guy might have to say. Look at the next verse. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond. Our church will always have people in it who have simply come to say, what does that strange bearded fat guy have to say? It's always going to be that way. Some will be curious. We've had people ride their bikes through the parking lot and come in, listen to one song, and run out. We've had, we've had people visit, see that Matthew was not Indo-European, and run out. We've had people listen to me speak for a few minutes and go, whoa, and run out. There will always be a crowd. What we're looking is that people in that circle begin to respond to the message, that there is an inward movement towards the center. This happens and you move from a crowd to a congregation. This is when you've begun to respond to the message and suddenly you care whether or not Fred is achieving his calling. You want to help him. He wants to help you. You begin to care about the people that are around you. Church is not a building any more than a pile of building materials is a building. That pile of building materials begins to be recognizable. It begins to be functional when everyone is in its place. A church is when all of the people have begun to know, what is my role? What is my role here? What should I be doing? They're not daydreaming about the day when they're released. They're not thinking about, one day I'll do my own thing. Their whole goal is, while I'm here, how can I bloom? In what way can I benefit John's life? In what way can I help Bob? How can I care about the others more than myself? Amen. That is church. There's yet one more group. It says, The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, 
She invited us to her home. If you would not want your pastor to come to your home, you are not a part of the core of a ministry. You know? Like the little boy sitting with the pastor and he says, Hey, little Johnny, what, what are we eating tonight? You know, mom, mom and dad are in the kitchen. And little Johnny says, I don't know. Never had it before, but mom and dad said some old goat was coming over for dinner. <laughs> if you don't want your pastor in your house, don't describe yourself as a part of the core of the ministry. If you go to a church where it's never a possibility that the pastor would come to your house, you need to ask yourself why. Because that's unbiblical. The church met in homes. If you only have interaction with a man through some digital media, that is not church. Uh, if I'm hurting your feelings, you're probably just not going to like it here. I mean, I hope you do. But the truth is, we get approached all of the time. Three times in this last week, men asked me if I would be willing to mentor them. The problem is they live a great distance away. That's not mentorship. How do I mentor someone that is four or five hundred miles away? How do you do that? And you know what I hear in that request? I want what you have. I'm just not willing to sacrifice to get it. That's what I hear. We can't do that. Now there happens to be a young man in a little cow town not far from here who I am going to stretch forward and help every way that I can because his heart's different. And I think what will happen is we will spark something and he will find a mentor in his hometown. We have to care about the ones that are outside of our circle too. My point though is we're supposed to start off in a crowd and move to a congregation and then end up in a core. All of Christianity does two things. It moves towards the center, closer to Christ, and as you are getting closer to Christ, your life begins to spin outward from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. As you move closer to Jesus, he begins to take you and throw you all over the world. That is the two movements in Christianity. You move closer to him, and he causes you to be spread out to everyone else. That's Christianity. Christianity is not hearing ten more reasons that you're blessed this year. Christianity is not hearing one more way that you can treat God like an investment program. Christianity is not to hear all that Jesus can do for you. Christianity is when you find out what you should be doing for Jesus. And your life is wrapped up in that. Don't be deceived, church. The Bible says the love of most will grow cold. Most. Mm -hmm. If we were looking at this from a global scale, I think most is going to fall somewhere in America. Mm -hmm. when, she had, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said... Come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. One of the things that I have known about life-changing ministries, I knew that Matthew would join me in. I knew that Mandy would join me in. That Steve would join me in. Our ministry cannot be something that occurs from a distance. In fact, we make people uncomfortable because we get all up in your business and some run from that. We're not controlling. You cannot be pastored from a comfortable distance. Pastoring is examining your heart. It is looking to see in what areas you need to be healed. It is constantly moving closer to Jesus. That is pastoring. That cannot be done from a distance. She persuaded Paul and Silas. I bet it wasn't that hard. That's why they were there. But let me ask you something. Was Lydia the vision that they saw? No. A man of Macedonia. We cannot become so singularly focused on the one thing that God showed us that we miss everything else along the way I've been very guilty of that I have run people over to get where God called me to go not realizing they were part of the process right Christianity is not an event it is a lifelong process so we need to be looking along the way verse 16 once when we were going to the place of prayer we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling this girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. Well, that's a nice thing to say. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. You know, isn't it nice to have the benefit of hindsight? Luke is writing this account, and he tells us, it was a spirit in her that was predicting the future. But, you know, nobody, she didn't have a sign on her head that said, I 
am uh, subject to a familiar spirit. It took them some time to discern that. One thing that I have found out is in American Christianity, particularly the spirit-filled variety, we've learned to say all of the right things. These men are of the Most High God. They're showing you the way to be saved. When inwardly, there's something wicked there. And we cover it. And we hide it. And we hide out in churches where it's not pointed out. I have run into this in our ministry over and over and over. And it is not lost people. It's not people outside the church. They're the ones that were raised in spirit-filled churches all of their life. And it's confusing. Because they say all of the right things. But you feel something is wrong. We will act on that 100% of the time. We may not explain it. We're going to let history explain it. Looking back upon the event, you can see there was something unclean there. You may not know it in the beginning. You just feel kind of strange. We're going to ask everybody to trust us on that. There are a lot of people in our church that are, that were in our church that are not now because of that feeling. You give it time, it always bears out. It does. I'm going to trust it. You know why? As many as are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I'm not dependent upon my intellect. If I was, we'd be in serious trouble. We'd have to make Darren the pastor. Right? I can pick on my brother because we've been friends a long time. Your eyes will lie to you. They will deceive you. Your ears will lie to you. People will say, blah, 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 blah. You need to be able to hear from God and speak right into their life. Right? When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone. Do you think they cared about the slave girl at all? There's a religious machine that calls itself Christianity that contorts spiritual things simply to extort people. They don't care about you. They don't really care about anything except your gifting. You sing good, they throw you on a stage. Doesn't matter whether you have the character to sustain what you're going to face. You preach good, let's throw you on a stage. doesn't matter whether or not you have developed the character to persevere in the kingdom and handle the attack. They simply want to make money off of you. I'm intent not to do that. And because of that, that means we've had some superstars sitting in seats for a long time. But that's because we're letting their character catch up to their gifting. And sometimes you'll hear and you go, Oh my, man, that was heavenly. I know. It's taken years to be able for that person to handle that kind of praise. Can you relate to that at all? Yes. One of the most damaging things that was done to me in a sweet, loving, intentional way, but damaging, I'd been born again a few days, and a man offered me a job in the Southern Baptist Church. A couple thousand dollars a month, an education, booked as a youth evangelist. That would have destroyed my life. It would have destroyed my wife. It was the most tempting thing that had ever happened to me. Right now, it seems like, how how could you even consider that? At the time, it seemed like, how could I consider anything else? This is obviously God. I was a baby. They didn't care for me personally. They cared for the ways in which I could build their machine. Mm -hmm. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Isn't this interesting? Luke is there. Timothy's there. But who gets seized? Off and Silas. Where'd the others go? I have no idea. It is not required that we all endure the same thing. It is required that we all be united in the same vision. Perhaps God had mercy on the young man. Perhaps God had mercy upon Luke, who had his scrolls with him or something. I, I don't know. I know that there was a group of at least four, and only two of them are getting the wine beat out of them, though. What happens to you when you feel like you are the only one who is having to endure something for the kingdom? Mm-hmm. You get resentful of people around you that have such easy lives. I'm the only one that works at this job. Everybody else is lazy. Hope I get off by three. <laughs> I'm the only one that stayed after to clean up. All those other people were tired because they were there six hours ahead of me setting up. We need to be very, very careful that we don't think that our experience is required for everyone else. God will move in you and through you to form the character that he wants in you. He required of Matthew to wait many years to get his princess. I remember the day she walked in the church. She was attached to some other guy, and we prayed that off. (laughs) He didn't require of me even a 90-day wait. 
he built something into Matthew that now he has a ministry that he can share special things with single people that I really have no concept of. I haven't made my own lunch since I was 15 years old. Right? Jennifer and I have been intertwined our lives since we were little kids. I don't know what it's like to sit there and yearn and hope that God has someone out there. But Matthew does. See, God builds into us different experiences. One struggles to have a baby. Another, you know, they breathe wrong and they're pregnant again. <laughs> we cannot become bitter with God's working in our lives. He's building something and He has the right to build into us whatever He wants. Amen? Amen. Okay, we're going somewhere with this that has to do with sacrificial songs, I promise. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews. Isn't it interesting that that's the first crime listed against them? The world's never changed. They are hated first and foremost because they are Jews. You know the first thing Haman said in the book of Esther about the Jews? Their customs are different from ours and they're detestable. God's people, whether Jewish or now grafted in Gentiles, should be distinct from the world. And it should be the first thing that they notice about you. It shouldn't be, wow, Dave's a good-looking brunette. It should be, Dave is a man of God. Amen. And everything else is secondary to that. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an awful uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. That's kind of a bold-faced lie, but the enemy doesn't seem to worry about that. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. One of the things the Lord told me as we began ministry is that it would require us to be stripped and beaten. <laughs> Isn't that nice to hear something like that? I mean, you want to hear that you're going to be the prophet to the nations. You want to hear that you're going to walk through a town and everybody is immediately going to fall out in salvation. Stripped and beaten. Then I began to realize as time went on there were an awful lot of things that had to be stripped off of me so that you could see Jesus somewhere in me. It's suffering that brings us familiar with the character of Christ. Stripped and beaten. If you spend your entire life trying to avoid any difficult circumstance, how can you hope to be used for God? All godly things come out of difficult circumstances. In fact, the lubrication for the wheels of revival is the blood of the saints. And the Bible says so. Think about that next time you're in the church on your knees praying for revival. You ever ask God, Lord, Lord, move upon us. We want to see the dead raised and the blind eyes open. Anybody ever prayed that? Who wants to volunteer to be blind or dead? <laughs> see, we want the amazing things of God, but we do not want to do what it takes to get there. And sometimes to meet the Macedonian man God called you to reach, it will require you to be stripped and beaten. And the thing that the devil tells you is that this humiliating experience has defamed you and the gospel. And the reality is it has stripped enough of you away that they might actually get to see the gospel. There is a lie in the church right now that says it is through your prosperity and your abundant blessing that others will see and want to be saved. Really, why are they not at Donald Trump's door knocking on it asking to be saved? Mm -hmm. It is not true. When they see you in the same circumstances as them, humbling, humiliating, degrading, and you have something that they do not have, they will ask you. So, well, I've never had that happen. Maybe you've avoided those situations your whole life. Done whatever it took to not be among those who were persecuted, and you called it wisdom. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. You know, it's interesting, because in Acts 22, excuse me, 25th verse, there's a man who's about to beat Paul. And he goes, whoa, whoa hey, it's awful for you to beat a Roman. And then they have this long discourse. You're a Roman? Yep, I was born in no ordinary city. He says, well, I had to pay a high price for my Roman citizenship. Paul said, I was born a Roman. He prevented a beating simply by claiming he was a Roman. Now, we know that Paul and Silas are both Romans. Why is he taking this beating if he can prevent it simply by saying who he is? 
it occurred to me that this is the very first man in Macedonia that he's run into. Mm. And this very same man ends up getting saved through this process. He saw a vision of a man saying, come over here and help us. Sometimes it is required that you take a beating for someone else's benefit. I'd love to tell you who he is, but I can't. I'm sitting in wheelies here with a young man. Course of an hour, this is my second week with him, by the way. Course of an hour, he begins to explain to me that I'm really not a very good husband. Now, he's not married, you know. I thought, why are you so interested in my wife, you know? But I sat and I listened. Then he began to explain that it was too hard on my firstborn son. To expect you're going to amen. And as time went on, he began to explain all the things that I didn't do very well as a pastor. Now, come on, put yourself in my shoes. I think he was 19. What begins to well up in you? God calls us to these situations, though. Because when I humbled myself and just loved him anyway, the very next week, he got baptized in the Holy Ghost, baptized in water. Sometimes people are slapping faces. They're stripping and they're beating because they just want to see, is there anything real in there? There are more hypocrites in the church than anywhere else in the world, and chief among them are the guys that stand behind the pulpit. You be something that's different. When you're insulted, do you return evil? Or can you smile, love them, and realize they're just a puppet and the puppet master is trying to meddle in your life? Huh? We've gotten to the point where we jokingly call it doormat ministries. People are going to come in, they're going to wipe their feet on us. All kind of yucky stuff gets all over us. But in the end, those people get clean. Sometimes they recognize it and are thankful for it, but most of the time they don't and they just move on. That's part of ministry. Like those bad people. How many of you have done exactly that with Jesus? I was saved in such and such year. He cleaned up my life. Great. You've been thankful for him every day? You revisit the cross every day? You talk to him about what he's done for you every day? Or is it just some distant event? They were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Boy, we sure don't like when we don't feel like we have the freedom to go anywhere we want and do anything we want. In fact, the charismatic church is the singular works. God has called me right here to work with Nolan. This is where God has called me. It's raining and it's cold. I think God has called me to go work over there with Brad. Brad's not being nice to me today. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. God probably called me to go work with the Torreses. And so we become like windshield wipers. We need to consider ourselves fastened to our calling. Fastened there. There's something to be said for loyalty. There's something to be said for perseverance and determination. And all too often we view everything simply as a season. Four of them in every year. I'm here for a season. I'm there for a season. There's a family that is an amazing family. God, we could help our church. We could help them. But they bought into the lie that they are not supposed to be in any church body. They're simply supposed to float. You mark my words. Their marriage will not make it in that condition, and they will never bear fruit for the kingdom. So how could you say something like that? Because I've been doing this 17 years. I've seen it hundreds of times before. It will not work. Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering of believers. There's supposed to be a five-fold ministry operating in all of our lives. None of us are exempt from it. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. If you were fastened in an inner cell after being stripped and beaten, and you could have avoided it, but you didn't, what would you be doing? You'd have your cell phone out. You won't believe what happened to me. We followed this idiot named Paul, and... He said that we were going to meet somebody that's going to get saved. And so we came and we hadn't met anybody but this chick named Lydia. And now we're in jail. <laughs> there was a mission trip one time. Went to Mexico to save Mexico. Because they realized that the hotels were dirty. Yeah. Heroes, right? They told us things like God could use their wealth to reach the nations. Really? How does that work when you cannot even sacrifice enough to sleep on a bed that you think is dirty? Most of those people that I call plastic Christians never did anything for Jesus. But young men, like some of the ones sitting in this room, who made $4 an hour and tithed 80% of their income, have seen blind eyes open. That's how God works. 
About midnight, they're singing hymns. Isn't it amazing? You wonder what hymn they sang? You think there was ever a time later in their lives they're sitting around going, man, every time I hear that song, I remember the time when it, the, the jail door swung open. I began to think about some of the hymns that we're familiar with. I walked out into the lobby and asked Fred and Suzanne because they were in the Methodist church for a very long time and Charles Wesley and John Wesley put together an amazing hymnal. Uh, I was in the Lutheran church as a little boy and Luther took all of the bar tunes and made them godly songs. I went out and asked them, hey, do you know these songs? They knew them immediately. wonder if you know how they were written, though. I want to tell you about some people real quick. Horatio Spafford. He was a 43-year-old lawyer. He had a wife named Anna and he had five children. In 1871, at the beginning of the year, his son, his only son, died. Anybody with kids knows how devastating that would be. No problem. He had four girls and a thriving business and lots of real estate. But in Chicago in 1871, it's called the year of the Great Fire. Later in the year, all of his real estate and therefore his life savings burned up. That's a bad year, isn't it? In 1873, Horatio wanted to take his family to Europe. He got delayed. He had to pay for the trip. Real estate transaction got delayed. He had to stay behind. So he sent Anna and his four daughters ahead of him. On November 22, 1873, the ship crashed into an iron ship. 226 people died in under 12 minutes. Horatio gets a letter, a telegram, a cable. It says, from Anna, his wife, I was saved alone survivor what shall I do so Horatio gets together his stuff and he gets on a boat to go get his wife from Europe as he's crossing the spot where his remaining four daughters died he wrote the song it is well with my soul hear these words when peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul though Satan should buffet through trials though trials should come lest this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul he had a visit with Jesus at the cross on the boat and he realized that whatever the pain that had happened in his life, Jesus was repairing the world, and he was starting with his life. He wrote that song because he had just opened the Bible and read Psalm 49:15. But God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to Himself. It's funny when I got born again, I I didn't really have a church background. I didn't know all the little Father Abraham songs and. Suzanne had mercy on me and she gave me a second chapter of Acts choir tape. That's how long ago that was. It was a tape. The first song on the first side was It Is Well With My Soul. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what the song even meant. I just knew that I could feel an anointing on it. Because God divinely enabled someone out of the depths of their struggle and their suffering to minister to other people. And he has always done this. This is why it's when Paul is being stripped and beaten and Silas and here in stock and they begin singing that the prisoners start listening. See, nothing's unusual about a man that's singing when everything is blessed. Nothing's unusual about a man that's happy when all goes well. But something is supernaturally unusual about a man who sings praises to the living God when nothing is going well. And so they listened. I couldn't believe the number of songs that I love that are written like that. You ever heard Just As I Am? Just As I Am Without One Want or Place? Listen to this, Charlotte Elliott. She's talented, beautiful writer, known for her attractive features. She lived in 19th century London. Her health began to fail her. Come on, ladies. When you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see and it's getting worse every day, could that affect your outlook on life? She runs into a reverend, Caesar Milan. He says, your talent and beauty 
are a thing of wonder, sweetheart. But without Jesus, you're no better than one of the lowly prostitutes that walks the street. Mm -hmm. Those words were hard to hear, don't you think? A little bit like being stripped and beaten. She cried. She threw him out of her house. Sometimes it's the hard word that requires you to sit and think. Because as weeks went by, she was troubled. She began to pray. On one of her few trips out of the house, she confessed to Reverend Milan, I really want him to come into my life. I just don't know where to start. Can you relate to that? Yeah. What got the woman into that place? <laughs> Difficult circumstance. His response was, sweetheart, come just as you are. Come just as you are. That stuck with her. Her health began to degrade. She spent 12 years, 12 years, that's as old as my son is, bedridden mm -hmm. when she wrote these words just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou biddest me to come to thee O Lamb of God mm -hmm. I come it's not through blessing that got her there it was through being faced with her own human frailty and needing help great trouble brings a great deliverer mm -hmm. just as I am and wanting not to rid my soul of even one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. She got to a place where all of her theological arguments had melted away, all of the stumbling blocks that were in her life had melted away, and she said, whatever I am, Lord, I'm coming to you right now. Right now. If you grew up in a traditional church, those songs probably moved you. Into a certain time period, they're just pretty songs. They were the most gut-wrenching, agonizing experiences of people's lives that God saved them through. What would have happened and how many people would not be ministered to mm -hmm. if these songs of sacrifice were not born? Yeah. I don't have time to tell you about my Jesus and Amazing Grace and all of those songs, but suffice it to say, they all have very similar stories. Let's look at Paul and Silas' song. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. Well, it's easy to sing praises if that's happening. I want you to know that they were singing praises before it happened. This brings to mind the question, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Did the prison doors fly open because they were praising? Praise will always pull you out. Do you hear this next line? And everybody's chains came loose. First and foremost, I came to Sugarland to see chains come loose. The most confusing thing is people are chained in all kinds of ways that you never get to see with your own eyes. They're chained to the affirmation of people that withheld it. They are chained to scars and memories from the past. They're chained to religious systems that are only interested in their talents and their monies and not their lives. They're chained to all kinds of things. As I began to think about that, God began to move on my heart. Isaiah 61, 1 is what began Jesus' ministry. The Lord has proclaimed has anointed me to proclaim freedom to captives, release to those who sit in darkness. Nothing's changed. But how does it come if you are not with them? If you're not willing to sit down next to somebody, get close enough to see the chains in their life, maybe even experience some of it yourself, how do they ever find freedom? If Paul and Silas consider themselves too blessed, to be stripped and beaten because remember they could have gotten out of it where are these men that are chained by the way isn't this exactly what Jesus did he entered into man's depraved world to rescue us from it and yet we as Christians seem to think that the glory of the cross is about us escaping the world it's not we build around ourselves fine eschatological systems that all remove any thought of suffering when suffering is the key to seeing salvation. It's the key. 
These sacrificial songs, I bet Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke, they, I bet they joked about them for years. I bet they could see each other in Jerusalem. One of them begins tapping his foot, and the other starts slapping his hip. And before long, they're right back there in their mind to that great day with the God of the universe caring enough to break other people's chains because of their obedience. I want you to think for a few minutes about where your testimonies lie. Because the only testimony that you can muster that God broke your chains, wouldn't the better testimony be that he set you free so that you could go help other people break their chains? How many of you invest in the CD and hope to get the exact same money out of it? If you do, we'll hold all your money for you. I bet you want to return. God blesses people for one reason, to be a blessing to others. That's what this ministry is supposed to be about. We're not about cramming a thousand people in here, although there may be one day a thousand people, I don't know. What we're about is seeing more chains fall. More people set free. The jailer woke up, I'll say. When he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The sentence of death is in his heart because he feels like a failure. How many people do you know like that? They feel like they might as well die because nothing is going right. But Paul was right there with him in that situation. And he says, don't harm yourself. God has sent us out to a world that already has the sentence of death. They don't need to be told they're going to hell. They already know it. What they need to be told is there's a way you can stop harming yourself. This is the gospel. But they won't care if they don't see you walking through the same things they're walking through. If you live in the ivory palace while they live on the dirt floors, they won't care. They'll put you in a different class of people. But when there's a layoff and everybody's losing their jobs and you have a quiet confidence and you'll give your last dollar to somebody else, that's where the rubber meets the road. When you don't give away your old shabby nasty, you give away your new shiny beautiful. That's where the rubber meets the road. When you sell the thing that you've always wanted for someone else's benefit, that's where the rubber meets the road. This is Christianity and you see so little of it, you may be confused. We aim to change that one life at a time. The jailer called for lights. You hear earlier the jailer woke up. The jailer called for lights. This is what happens with everyone. You have an awakening. Then you begin to call for revelation. And the God of the universe says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will find it. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What if they had not accepted the beating? What if they had simply said, we have a right as Roman citizens to avoid this? They never meet the jailer. When we opt out of every difficult thing, when we say God has suddenly led me in a new direction, we are leaving people chained. And we cannot do it. I tell you, I've been joking with people about 2009. I said if I'd been told everything that would have transpired in that, I don't know if I'd have done it. But now that I'm at the end of it, I wouldn't trade it for anything. But isn't all of Christianity like that? Since resolve in your hearts that you'll be chained to the cause that God will add to you Silas, Timothy, whatever it is that you need. That when one man sees a vision, if you're called to work with that man, that's enough for you. That you can be in covenant with somebody lifelong and don't need to have weird, selfish ambition. Be willing to sing while everybody else is crying. Do you really think that they weren't hurt? Do you really think they didn't have a right to cry? Be the one that's smiling at the funeral. Be the one that offers life while everybody else is only mourning. If you should happen to outlive me, wear Hawaiian shirts to my funeral. Dance. Dance. Some of you are bold. Snatch me out of the coffin. See if you can wake me up. But if you can't... (laughs) But if you can't, know for certain. With my own two eyes, I will stand upon the earth and see my Redeemer. 
So sure they don't breathe. See, this is where the rubber meets the road. But we see it so few times that we don't know what to look for. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. What a bold statement. How do you say something like that? Mm. Well, if you've seen it in the vision years before and you've spent years reminding each other of the vision and working there, you can be sure it's going to happen. You know what the next few sentences tell you? The family heard the word of God and they believed and were saved. Mm. Had to go through a whole lot of valley to get to that mountaintop. But in the end, do you think they would have traded it for anything? Some of you will plant churches. Some of you will remain a thriving part of this church. One day, one of you may take over this church and Matthew and I be old men working somewhere else. None of us owns our life. None of us owns this church. This is the kingdom. That is our goal, the kingdom. This is our ministry's vision. I'm inviting you to join it. Not to attend here. Not just to give your money here, although we need, need money to make this work. I am inviting you to join in that vision. And I have one more word for you. If you attend here, but this vision is not attractive to you, go somewhere else. I mean that with my whole heart. You will infect the rest of us. We're stupid enough to believe this is possible. But if you think that somewhere in you, you might be persuaded that this could be your vision, rub around those people that already have it. And let it get all over you. We're going to sing... Whatever Matthew wants to sing, we're going to close our service in worship. We have no plan. These guys walked up here because I'm learning that we need altar time sometimes. I'm not going to compel you to come forward. What we're going to do is we're going to worship. When you need to leave, leave. If you want to come to the altar, come to the altar. But whatever you do this year, let it be your year you join in this vision. Or else, we'll catch a different flight. Okay? I love all of you. I want you here. But you don't do any of us any good if this is not what you're interested in. Okay? If you don't think I'm serious, go find my family. Y'all stay in your seat. Mighty, mighty God. Lord, we commit our hearts to you today. Lord, in weakness, in fear, and trembling. Lord, even in sickness. I shared with them what you shared with me. Lord, I'm praying that it would infect their hearts. Lord God, that it would permeate their spirit. That this would be the year that you raise up the core that works in the harvest field. That this would be the year that those that we've labored to see your gospel established in would go produce the kingdom's fruit. Holy, holy one, from the oldest to the youngest, we give them to you. Lord, we let go of the reins. We empower them in the name of Jesus to go forth and make disciples of all nations. We love you, Jesus, and we worship you.
to figure you're bought into this. Mighty, mighty God, Lord, we love you. Lord, whether in weakness or in strength, our desire is to exalt your name. Lord, some don't know how. Some of us just don't know what to do. But we know that you'll show us. And we love you and we trust you. Lord, speak to the hearts and minds of the people that they might be obedient to your will. For obedience is better than sacrifice. Lord, let the obedient in this church be blessed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Right.